Hello and welcome to this GCP short produced with Axet XL and all about expanding captive programs in collaboration with your fronting and reinsurance partners. I really do enjoy it when our friends of the podcast come together for an episode and we are treated this time to hearing from Matthew Latham, Chief Underwriting Officer for Global Programs and Captives at AXA XL and Jason Flaxbeard, Senior Managing Director at Beecher Carlson. Over the next 20 minutes, the three of us will discuss the role fronting and reinsurance partners play when a captive is looking to take on more risk or write new lines, how that process plays out, and the collateral requirements needed as well. So, Matt, perhaps a good way to start is just for you to outline us, outline for us what role a fronting partner does play when a, when a client is looking to expand their captive's role in, in one or more of their existing programs. Thanks, Richard, for that. And, uh, you know, first, before I get into that, I'd just like to say that, uh, you know, companies like ours, um, you know, definitely embrace the involvement of a captive. You know, that's why we have a captive team. And we, yep. we like the fact that um, there is an alignment of interest between ourselves and the client when they're taking more risk. Um, it gives them a greater focus on risk management. It avoids sort of inefficient sort of dollar pound swapping in that sort of attritional layer. So it's it's very much something that we welcome and it's consistent with our sort of payer to partner strategy. Um, what that means is we don't just want to be a provider of risk transfer capacity, but we actually want to partner with our clients to provide them with services to you know help them to manage their risks and get the most out of their business. So global program services, captive fronting, risk engineering, complex claims management and, and that type of thing. So how do we help them? Well, if the program is a global program, then the captive's definitely going to need a fronting insurer as they won't have a license in most countries around the world. Um, so companies like ourselves have a network and we also have a broad product range uh, where we have underwriters with expertise in you know, many different classes of business. So wherever the client wants to have a policy issued in whatever line of business, you know, we should be able to help them, provided we have risk appetite for that. Because one of the things um, we always like to do is to take some risk in a structure. So, you know, sitting excess of the captive or alongside of the captive, uh, we don't really like to do the programs where we would just reinsure 100% to the captive. So we do need underwriters who have got that appetite. If, if we're the existing insurer, then we need to understand, you know, what the increased role of the captive involves. Typically, I'd imagine it would um, involve taking a higher retention, you know, at the bottom end of the program. And if so, what we'll need to do is we'll need to sort of provide pricing for different attachment points and for different retention levels of the captive. If it's a line of business that, you know, the captive hasn't written before, or it's a new opportunity for us, then in addition to looking at those pricing and attachment points, you know, we'll also need to be talking to the client about uh, our approach to how we manage credit risk and collateral, you know, the documentation we'd require, and also the fees we would charge for our services. So they're some of the key aspects we'll look at. Jason, just to bring you in on this, when you're discussing with captive owners their their risk financing strategy what support or discussions are you looking for from from the fronters and existing fronters and, and reinsurance partners that are already involved perhaps with with the captive well thanks uh, thanks again for the invitation to this matt and uh, richard excellent question I, I i really do value the partnership that we have with the fronting carriers uh, we, we've, we've worked uh, extensively with companies like axxl for for years now and what, what we find is the best strategy here is to, is to share as much of the client's risk appetite uh, discussions with the fronting carrier as we possibly can. So the, the first step that we always tend to take 
is to do a risk uh, risk appetite analysis with our clients. We, we assess analytically the content of the risk that they're taking on a first party basis. We, we assess that output, the, the analytics of that output against what the market wants to charge for the same risk. And then we see if there's some arbitrage there. And if there's some arbitrage there in as much as the market wants to charge more than the, the client is willing to pay or that the, the client thinks that's a good bet to take, then we uh, then we go to our partners like uh, AxXL and we, we speak to them and they say, look, this is the this is the structure that the client wants. Can you partner with us um, with, within this structure? This often leads to a, a long-term strategy uh, because, as you know, the market fluctuates. There's, there's hard markets, there's soft cycles, and developing that relationship allows long-term partnerships across both cycles, which is beneficial to both parties. But the, the first thing is the analytics. Uh, the, the, the second thing is, is the discussion on uh, risk appetite. And the third is the partnership with the with, with the, the fronting carriers, Richard. And so, obviously, we're, we're talking. One of the reasons we're having this discussion is because, of course, we know that captives are looking to to take on more risk in this in this market at the moment. And and as clients are looking to revamp their programs, Jason, including expanding the use of the captive, as we mentioned, is it is this about uh, simply about finding more capacity at the moment, or is it driven by more by pricing, or is it a combination of, of the two? The answer is it's a combination of the two, but in, in the initial stages, it's pricing. For, for first-party business, for corporate business, uh, clients, uh, after they've run their analytics, will, will ordinarily take the analytics to the market and say, what is the price for my risk? Once that risk pricing comes back, we, we can run the assessment as to whether or not we want to actually take that risk inside uh, the corporate vehicle, or we can, uh, if we want to transfer that to the marketplace. As prices keep going up, the clients are saying, give me some options. There aren't any clients that I know who, who want to receive a renewal quote the day before renewal and with a take it or leave it uh, option. They want to know ahead of time, is there a way to arbitrage the market? Is there a way that they can spend less on insurance and still get the same coverage? Everybody in this marketplace wants their, their cake and eat it too, um, you know, as we all do. Everybody loves a bit of cake. But so what we, what we try and do is we try and run the analytics for the first party. But then in, also, well, I think one of the things that we should mention here at some point in, this, in, in the podcast is a lot, a lot of clients are saying, if this market is getting hard for me, it's getting hard for everybody. Is there a way for me as an entity to start looking at capturing third party business through what I do as an entity? So if you're a, um, an apartment building owner and you've got tenants, you might look at tenant insurance coverage. If you, uh, if you own warehouses, you might look at selling insurance uh, inside uh, to, to people who you know, purchase the uh, to place their goods inside your warehouse. Um, there's all sorts of different places that companies are now starting to look, especially the savvy ones. They, they know the market's hard for them. So they take more risk themselves and they look to try and expand their third-party programs to capture more of the hardening market through, uh, through different interests. And I find that that, uh, that, that, that symbiosis is, is, is pretty key to the way that the, the successful companies are navigating this, this marketplace. Uh, so it is, it is price, and, and price is, is, the, is, is the catalyst to most of the conversations. Following that, the, the capacity around the, uh, the availability of third-party uh, programs is, is, is also a key metric that, that companies are looking towards. We hear a lot about, I think, sometimes a captive being used as kind of almost like a negotiating tactic for the insured, which I'm, I'm never quite sure how, how true that actually is. But how can it, how can an existing captive help when an insurer like yourselves is in 
renewal discussions you know what role can a captive play in that in that process yeah richard i I definitely think it has got a role to play i mean if you think about the current market we're in now in particular you know you've got um, three main impacts we've got an increase in pricing we've got reduced capacity from insurers and in some cases also coverage exclusions and i think a captive can play a role in all three of those areas i think the captive can do that in a soft market as well but i think in a hard market you know it's it's got an even bigger role to play so if we sort of think about, you know, how can it impact on pricing? Well, if a captive is going to start taking a share of the program or even take a higher share than they had done before, they can set the pricing sitting behind the fronting insurer typically um, for that layer. And they will base their pricing for that layer on the exposure that the program has and also the loss history. It won't be impacted by the wider market environment, which is sort of changing the pricing for commercial market at the moment. So by having an amount of premium that you effectively control through the captive, uh, you know, you're providing a bit more stability to pricing and reducing the amount that's going to the, to the commercial market where price increases are happening. Also on the capacity side, you know, if you're taking a bigger retention, you know, you can move up the commercial insurers higher up the tower to potentially a place where they're more happy to take the risk and therefore they can bring additional capacity. We've even seen some um, situations where because um, not all of the placements are being filled at the moment, particularly on, say, property or marine or energy type of lines, we have seen some clients looking to see if they can use their captive on a quota share basis to fill that sort of capacity. You know, clients would be faced with the prospect of either not having cover because they've only placed 80 percent of the um, of the program or getting cover through their captive. So they're going to retain the risk, risk either way. So may as well put it through the captive and the benefits to that. So finally, a captive could be used to provide some um, cover, which may have been sort of excluded in in the recent market. You know, an example for that could be, um, you know, something around non-damaged business interruption. Uh, You know, obviously that's been impacted by the current COVID situation. Or it could be that, you know, the insurer wants to put some sublimits on, um, you know, NatCat type of events. And uh, a captive could certainly sort of come in, fill some of those holes that had previously uh, been covered in the past, you know, up to the amount of limit that the captive is prepared to underwrite. So I think, uh, you know, captive can definitely help with all sort of three of the areas that uh, are being hit through the hard market. Yeah, one of the things that I've seen uh, inside of that, Matt, is uh, especially for coverages inside the property market, they've been sublimited. What we're seeing is that, uh, that, that let's say that there's some that there's a sublimit for non-damaged BI or another critical coverage inside the property tower inside the marketplace. Let's say that there's fifty million dollars of sublimit available. What we sometimes see is is, is the first twenty five written in current in existing markets. The captive sits in that next layer of say twenty five excess of twenty five and ventilates the tower so that, that it can get let's say seventy five million dollars of total limits. But because it sits in a ventilated position inside or a sandwich position inside the tower, it gets paid more for that risk by, by the parent uh, than it would do if it sat on an excess layer. So I, I think that captives inside those uh, inside those structures are, are providing many, many different responses to the marketplace. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I haven't seen one like that. I mean, as I said, most of the time uh, when we're providing fronting services for and, and reinsuring business to the captives, it's usually at the lower end of the program so that sort of more attritional frequency layer but uh, yeah that's an interesting use and i i think you know the seven thousand captives out there they're all very bespoke um and uh, each one has got its own program design so it's uh, it's great to hear about these different solutions and how they're being used very versatile they really are it's, and it's a terrific conversation that you can have with all of your clients it's it's where 
best to place your captive. I've, I've been talking to excess markets recently, and um, some of them have said, our price is our price no matter where you put us in the program. It's X, X dollars per million. So it's, it's X dollars per million if we sit above 200 million. It's X dollars per million if we sit above 500 million. So the question is, if you want to use your captive in one of those spaces, you try and uh, use that pricing to, to place into your captive, place it behind a fronting carrier like yourself so you can get the, the, the A rating for, for lender requirements. Um, and then you take the higher price inside your captive. So obviously, if, if we're talking about captives taking on uh, more risk, Matt, of course, there's going to be collateral uh, and credit risk issues at, at play here. And we're going to come on to some of them relating to the captive directly in a second. But credit risk management must be a big focus for the insurers, uh, such as AXA XL currently. What does this mean for captives when looking to agree collateral requirements with, with their fronting partners for expanded programs? It won't be a surprise to many people to know that, you know, in the current environment, particularly since, um, you know, the onset of this pandemic, that uh, credit risk is being very closely monitored by insurers. You know, unfortunately, there are a number of companies and sectors that aren't in a, such a strong position as they were pre-COVID. And, uh, you know, we have to look into that when we're sort of reinsuring to a captive. We don't look just at the captive and its ability to pay, but also the parent company, which owns that captive. So teams um, like ours who are focused on captive fronting, you know, we work very closely with our credit risk management function. That's where we sort of have our sort of credit risk analysts who are there to sort of, you know, review the credit risk. They take into account a number of factors in that process. They look at the captive's um, financial strength, you know, using their sort of latest report and accounts. They look at the parent company rating. They look at the parent company's business and, uh, you know, various ratios that they would use. Obviously, you know, we provide them with the loss profile. If it's, um, if it's a frequency loss, then we'll do an actuarial analysis and give them the sort of expected losses at different percentiles. We'll look at, uh, you know, they'll also look at the sort of type of risk profile of that line of business? Is it severity? And how much limits are we ceding to the captive as well? And finally, um, you know, they also, if we know the captive's buying reinsurance behind, we, you know, we'll, we'll want to know sort of what that level of security is that sits behind them because that can give us some comfort as well. So yeah, in, in the current environment, yeah, uh, credit risk is a big focus and we are looking to take a stronger collateral as possible to sort of support that credit risk. So, you know, what people refer to as hard collateral, you know, could include things like letters of credit, um, where you get a sort of effectively a guarantee from a bank or some forms of sort of trust or pledge of assets. Also, you have surety policies, you know, which would be a guarantee from an insurance company. Um, you also have some forms of softer collateral, um, such as a parental guarantee, where the parent is sort of guaranteeing the obligations of the captive and uh, other things like, um, you know, where the reinsurance of the captive is assigned to the fronting insurer. And there's also sort of various um, clauses you can put in the reinsurance uh, contract to sort of help manage that credit risk. And, and I think it'd be fair to say that, uh, you know, fronting insurers are sort of looking to take as much um, support for that as possible at the moment. And, and presumably there are there are different requirements on collateral depending on on the region that the the captive is in or or, the, or where the risk is being written. Yeah, I'll let Jason jump in in a second on the on the US. But I mean, in general, my view on 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 the US environment is that uh, you know a sort of a form of harder collateral like a letter of credit or a trust uh, or funds withheld is normal in the US market, and that's partly because there are capital penalties fronting insurers have 
if they're reinsuring to an unauthorized reinsurer, you know, it's often referred to as Schedule F. So the discussion is not so much about um, will collateral be provided, but how much? Um, I don't know whether you want to add anything there, Jason. Yeah, so Schedule F, as as people may or may not know, is, is, is the section of the yellow book, which all NAIC approved entities are supposed to complete on an annual, quarterly and annual basis. Uh, but you can only place a reinsurance recoverable in there to the extent that it is collateralized. And Matt rightly said that the three forms of, uh, of collateral are, are funds withheld, Section 114 trusts, or letters of credit. And if those are available, then the, the reinsurer, or yes, the, uh, the carrier can actually take credit for that reinsurance under, under Schedule F. And it doesn't, as Matt says, it doesn't ding their capital. Mm-hmm. So um, there are some of the other softer forms of collateral in the U.S. are not uh, not approval like parental guarantees. It makes the carrier feel better that there is no credit risk, but it's not. Uh, it, it, does, it doesn't allow for the carrying of that reinsurance recovery on the balance sheet. Yeah. So so just to jump back in, thanks for that, Jason. So just to give a bit of a flavour as Europe and indeed the rest of the world, how that might be different from the U.S. is that uh, collateral is often not provided, and uh, you know, and it's, it's often resisted and. I think the primary reason for that is there isn't these regulatory capital penalties that Jason's just explained there. I think there's also sort of cultural differences as well. The the captive is often set up in a sort of a solvency two jurisdiction, and uh, it has um, you, you know good solvency ratios, and the risk managers feel that that should be accepted without um, collateral to support. But uh, you know if we don't get collateral as a fronting insurer, you know we do have increased capital costs on our balance sheet, as well as obviously uh, a greater credit risk as well. So you know when collateral is provided, there are some benefits. Um, you know the, the benefits is that, that the fronting fees can be um, reduced um, because part of the fronting fee calculation takes into account capital costs and. Credit at risk. So it's, it's it's not all one way um, and uh, collateral can can help in that respect. Is, is there a way, Matt, for the, the client to help minimize the amount of collateral that, that they might need to need to post? I think the best way they can minimize it um, is really through the structure. So, you know, w- when we're looking at um, the contract we have with the captive, if it is uh, the type of structure where we're just reinsuring to the captive the amount of risk that they will retain net, then typically the limits can be relatively low. You know, it could be sort of one, two, three million, something like that. Maybe it's maybe it's also aggregated um, at 10 million. If that's mm. the case, then our maximum exposure to that captive would be 10 million. But let's sort of think about a, a, another type of structure, which we often call gross line structure, which would be where, you know, the full limits that we issue for on behalf of the client, uh, we reinsure those limits fully to the captive and then the captive buys its reinsurance behind. And it often may involve, um, you know, the fronting insurer as well, but it it allows them to access the reinsurance market, you know, so there's some good reasons why they would have that structure. But as a fronting insurer, from our perspective, it means we're now sort of exposed to the captive for the full limits that we've written. Okay, they've got good reinsurance support behind them, but actually our uh, relationship is direct with the captive, and uh, you know, and it could be sort of you know, hundred, two hundred million of limit that we're reinsuring to the captive. So that creates more credit risk challenges for us. Um, you know, we have to think carefully about what collateral we'll need. Um, otherwise, we could be carrying some very significant capital costs and running a significant credit risk as well. So I would say, you know, they can minimise it through sort of the structure, and you know, obviously working with people like Jason and his colleagues, they would give good advice around that as well. And just just lastly, then Matt. Obviously, we we haven't talked about specific lines or specific programs. We, we've done that quite deliberately because we want to talk from a kind of a more strategy point of view. But what kind of programs are AXA XL kind of currently fronting for, and are there limits on the on the kind of programs or risks that you will front for at, at present? 
Yeah, not not really so much on limits. I mean, you know, the limits we can provide, you know, whatever limits our underwriters are prepared to underwrite, whether there's a captive involved or not, you know, would be available for captive programs. So typically for sort of property energy type risk, you know, we can sort of issue limits up to sort of 500 million, occasionally more subject to sort of referrals. Obviously, casualty limits would be typically lower because they wouldn't require them up to that level. So, you know, there's significant limits that can be put out there. In terms of um, the lines of business that we're uh, reinsuring to captives, I think it's primarily liability and property. I would say probably sort of 30, 40% liability, similar number on property, um, leaving the remainder is sort of marine and cargo, a bit of auto, auto motor, some construction, and, and then various miscellaneous lines. I'd say that that miscellaneous bucket has been growing in recent years as people have um, decided to use their uh, captive for cyber um, or environmental or we even have some political violence and terrorism in captives as well. So that's a sort of a growing area, but it's dominated by liability and property. Well, thank you to Matt and Jason for a very engaging 20-minute discussion on a pretty hot topic for 2020. To find out more about our two guests and AXA XL's captive services, please do visit globalcaptivepodcast.com. Links are in the episode description. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives. Captives.